0: Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the King, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, "Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him." When Herod the King heard this, he was troubled And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. When they had heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise you, Lord Christ.
1: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Our gospel text this evening uh, gives us a very dramatic scene, right? There's a a retinue of foreign dignitaries, well-trained in distant and mysterious magics, who arrive into Jerusalem and begin asking everyone in the city uh, where can we find your newborn king? We saw in the skies uh, evidence of his birth, and we're here to pay him homage. In Roman-occupied Palestine, this is scandalous, to say the least. Uh, you have Herod, who is currently reigning as a client king of the Roman Empire, and it's kind of an uneasy but stable-ish uh, situation. But now, all of a sudden, you have these travelers who are from outside of the empire uh, who, have, who have arrived with the insistence that there's a birth, and that this birth means that the true ruler of God's people has arrived in the world and is being proclaimed by the heavens themselves. These are dangerous claims. If true, these are the kinds of claims that may well upend the authority of the rulers and their courtiers, uh, that may destabilize the foundations of the religious elites. Right. So so what we have, we have these strangers enter into Jerusalem and imply that everyone who is there might well have uh, quite a bit to lose. And this is what I just absolutely love about Scripture, about how captivating it is. Because in the revealing to us of the story of God's work in the world, there remains a very sharp sense of drama and suspense, right? The the line, King Herod was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. That That's a good line. That is tense. The arrival of Christ into the world is causing a commotion. The heavens are out of sorts. The city is out of sorts. The people are out of sorts. Something about the incarnation of God makes everyone freeze and hold their breath and glance around and start frantically looking for answers. And I think St. Matthew is relaying this story with this tension intentionally. Uh, I think when we read it, we're meant to feel some of the stress, some of the Uh, the anxiety, the nervous energy being felt by the people at the time of Christ's birth. Because, as I mentioned, everyone in this passage uh, has something to lose by the claims of these wise men being true. Uh, Certainly the powerful and wealthy in Jerusalem are in danger if there's a new king. Uh, Transitions of power are often unstable. Uh, But even more so, this is the kind of king that confounds the simple dynastic structure that they uh, take safety in. Uh, and it's, it's a new thing. There were no stars when Herod was born. Creation did not shine bright with the announcement of a birth when his sons uh, were born. This is the kind of king that is of God, called by God, God himself arriving to rule and conquer and judge. And if you're one of the people living in the comfort and ease of the political system, this is a dangerous, uh, dangerous arrival. But I think we might forget that for the Magi, this is also kind of a devastating revelation. These are men studied in ancient forms of astrology and magics who have spent their whole lives watching the movements of celestial bodies uh, uh, so that way they can divine the future as they look for truth. And at last, in a spectacular and unpredictable surprise, their craft has revealed truth, capital T, truth, and it proves to be a glancing refutation of their traditions and life's work. Because when the heavens finally do speak, it is to proclaim that the God of a foreign people is the one active and at work in creation, it is, it is the God of Israel, a people with only one God, that the heavens are displaying their brilliant lights for. It is only for this God that creation shines, the God who gave a special law to a special people and not to the deities of the, of the Magi. And so the resulting sum of all of their wisdom is the conclusion that they've been fools, for thinking that there are any powers apart from God, uh, sorry, any powers apart from God, the God worshipped by the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, now they're all convened in Jerusalem, a consortium of people threatened by the arrival of the Messiah in the world. And this is where St. Matthew has placed us in the story caught up in their tension, giving us a chance to pause and consider the question. I can see what this this tension means for the characters in this story, but what does the arrival of the Messiah mean for me or for us? And I think the answer to that question uh, lies in the epiphany, and our response to the epiphany of Christ to the world, When it comes down to it, we are confronted with the arrival of Christ in the world and are given a choice. We can either bow down before him and hand over to him the glory and honor that he is due, or we can collude to resist the intrusion of his kingdom into ours. That is the option on display by the principal figures in the gospel passage. Either we celebrate the work of God in the world, or we fight it. And so I think with, with, those, with that question posed to us, as we watch the rest of the story unfold, we see something uh, quite interesting and, and, and something that, that speaks to the beauty of the way that God is at work in the world. Because on the one hand, St Matthew, has, his entire gospel is deeply contemplative of the narrative of the Jewish scriptures. And so when everyone huddles together in Jerusalem, we might assume that it would be delegates from God's own people that would uh, go and rejoice at the arrival of God in the world. But surprisingly, that's not the group of people who fall at the feet of the infant Christ. It's the foreigners, the magicians, the astrologers, to whom the laws of God, the promises of God, are foreign concepts. The very ones for whom the arrival of Christ should be the least meaningful, Are the ones for whom, uh, are the ones who give him proper honor and reverence. And this is the great revelation of the Epiphany. This is the very reason that we feast and that we celebrate and that we eat bacon and waffles and bourbon. It is because we see here that against any other predictions or expectations, the intervention of God into the story of humankind is precisely to the benefit and joy of anyone who will put aside their folly and error and surrender to the very goodness of the presence of Christ. If we we take a step back, the whole arc of the narrative of the scriptures up until this point runs along with kind of a tension in the middle of it. In the garden, God promises to Adam and Eve that he will do a restorative work in crushing down the evil of sin. But immediately after, uh, a question is posed to us. When we see uh, Cain and Abel come and offer their sacrifice and God accepts Abel's sacrifice and does not accept Cain's sacrifice, and now there's a question, well, is this restorative work that God is going to do, is it is it limited in scope? Is God going to play favorites? And we see all throughout the, the narrative of the scriptures, through, through the story of the flood, into the story of the patriarchs, uh, the exodus, the judges, the, the establishment of the kingdom, and the exile, this sort of narrative thread goes through, which might suggest that the answer to that question is yes, God is going to play favorites. God's restorative work may be only for his designated people, and, and, and possibly for no one else. This is, this is somewhat, uh, somewhat the impression you might get. Now, that, that, that impression is a bit confounded, as we, as we heard in uh, Isaiah tonight uh, and in the psalm, that there seems to be hinting that uh, the rest of the world is not outside of God's redemptive plan, but there's not a whole lot of clarity as to what's that going to look like. And so St. Matthew picks up on that tension when, when he writes of the epiphany, Because in his relaying of that event, the mystery is resolved and the theory that God's work is going to just be for for this group of people and no one else is refuted. The beauty and hope and joy and grace of God's kingdom is available for anyone who will cast aside what they stand to lose from the presence of God in the world and rejoice at his being near. And it's in light of this that we can kind of look at Herod's response and the response of the wise men and, and make some comparisons because, uh, while the wise men come and stand to lose their entire intellectual tradition, their entire faith tradition, uh, because of the presence of Christ in the world, uh, Herod's court, uh, is digging in their feet, right? They, they plan and connive how they might prevent God's kingship. And if we look at that, we, we can't help but wonder what, what seems to be the reward in that. We see the reward of the wise men. They get to encounter the living God. They get to worship him. They get to experience him. They get to render unto him the honor that he is due and be blessed by the truth of his presence. Herod gets paranoia. Uh, Herod gets a life of looking over his shoulder. Right? He... Uh, he gets, ultimately, the mighty arm of Rome coming down on this little client kingdom. Herod is so desperate to keep his own throne, to retain the shadow of power that he has wielded, that he dispatches uh, his agents to execute hundreds of innocent, uh, hundreds of innocent children. His, the epiphany is so terrifying that to avoid the reality of it, he will stoop to the lowest levels of depravity to insist that he remains king instead of God. And what did he get? There is no throne of Herod anymore. There exists nowhere on this planet a regime governed by any of his descendants. No effort of Herod to spare his throne won him anything. The Son of God invited him to receive real honor. And yet when confronted with the epiphany of God in the world, he chooses to live a life of dishonor, stubbornness, and insecurity. Uh, I'm reminded actually a little bit of of the book The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Um, I reread it every other year, so in all of the odd years. Um, So I've just finished rereading it on December 31st, uh, but I got it in in time, so you can't say that I'm off my cycle. Um, if you are familiar with that story at all, kind of the the, the quick synopsis is a group of ghosts um, are allowed to take a bus ride from hell to heaven, and while they're there, they find out that they have no obligation to return to hell. Uh, they're welcome to stay in heaven um, as long as they will give up the things that have kept them tethered to hell. Uh, and every ghost in the story is met by a spirit, someone who radiates the glory of God uh, and and is someone that they knew from their life and implores them to stay. And then the book sort of looks at all of these conversations. Uh, and what we see time and time again in the, in the narrative is that uh, every one of them comes up with some excuse as to why eternal life isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Uh, in, in classic Lewis fashion, he sort of highlights the lunacy and near, uh, near hyperbolic absurdity of their reasoning. Um, a few of my favorites, uh, there's an academic who uh, has no interest in heaven because it is a place of answers and he only cares about questions. Um, and so he has, to, he has to get himself back to his little study group in hell uh, where they write papers and, and debate. Um, and, you know, some of us might know a few people like that or see a few people like that in the mirror. Um, couldn't it be me? Uh, there's also one of my favorites is uh, there's a painter who um, had spent his whole life trying to capture the beauties of creation. And when he's in heaven, he is so troubled because uh, he's told that no one there is going to care about his painting. Uh, that his painting is never going to, is never going to matter. His paintings, uh, he can never be a famous painter in heaven because uh, the purpose of painting is to reveal the beauty of creation. And here the beauty of creation is, is lived and breathed. And so he chooses instead to return uh, to hell, where since he can't be famous in heaven, might as well return to be infamous in hell. Uh, And I think the obvious argument in, in the story is that so very little is lost and all of eternity is gained if the characters will just shrug off their pride. And to the reader, that's supposed to be obvious. But the whole point, of course, is that it doesn't seem obvious to the characters. There's nothing to gain from their sinfulness, but they still can't shed it. The thesis of the whole book can essentially be summed up in this sentence from Lewis's intro. Um, if we insist on keeping hell, we shall not see heaven. If we accept heaven, we shall not be able to retain even, in the small, even the smallest and most intimate souvenirs of hell. And I think that may well be a fairly decent summary of the challenge posed to us by the epiphany of Christ to the world. We can follow Herod's lead and do everything in our power to resist the presence of Christ, To, uh, in Lewis's words, to retain the smallest and most intimate souvenirs of hell, and we can lose it all. Or we can follow the Magi and put aside our false beliefs, our sinfulness, our bad worship, and enter into the presence of the living God and find in him joy and life and peace. And he has made this option available to all who desire it. This, is, this is the, If the question of epiphany is how we're going to respond, the, the miraculous joy of epiphany is that, uh, is that we know that it's available, it's, it's the, the opportunity is available to us. Uh, We know that we can be met by Christ, so the question is whether we will give up those intimate souvenirs and find our joy in God being with us and near us. And this is the question that will continue to face us. Will we come and joyfully meet with Christ our God, whatever the cost? Or will we insist that our precious little next to nothing, is so much more important that our control over our own lives, our sense of superiority, our, uh, our pride, our arrogance, the list goes on. Is that worth retaining if it costs us the, the presence of God in our lives, in the lives of our loved ones? I think the answer we would probably all nod our heads and agree to is, oh no, of course it's not worth it. it is, it's, uh, you know, it's worth it to follow the example of the Magi. And so my, uh, my suggestion is that we do precisely that, that we come to the table of our Lord tonight, not, uh, not with a sense of, um, of reluctance, but of joy, that we get to be in the presence of our God that he has welcomed all of us and has made it an opportunity of joy for all who are willing and able to put aside their pride and rejoice in the beautiful presence of God with us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.